Hello and welcome to the Mighty 90s Movie and TV Podcast. I'm Simon. And I'm Dom. And on this episode we are diving into Fight Fight Club! Welcome to the Mighty 90s Movie and TV Podcast where it's always 10.30 at night so it's time to grab the snacks from the sweet cupboard move upstairs and settle in as tonight's movie for debate is Fight Club. So, Dom, before re-watching it, what did you remember about Fight Club? I remembered quite quite a bit about it, with the obvious that Edward Norton and Brad Pitt are the same person. Uh, but there's the whole big reveal at the end. And I, I, I remember quite specifically his condo blowing up. Since rewatching it, I haven't watched it for for years. So there's just bits of the film that you remember. So obviously all the fight bits and the rules. Everybody remembers the rules of Fight Club. Actually, everybody always remembers the first two rules of Fight Club and doesn't remember the rest. I think there's like seven, eight, seven. So I remember quite a few bits and we are the all singing, all dancing, crap of the earth sort of thing. That that bit as well. Uh, other than that, it was just bits of the film. I remember Meatloaf being in it. That's about it, really. Did you see it in the cinema? No. This is a home video yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah, watch on TV at home. What about you? I remember watching this in the cinema with my parents, and this would have been one of like the first incidences of me watching like an adult film with my parents in the cinema, it being like a big deal. So my dad, as you know, has always been like my hero growing up and always been like the coolest guy. There's never been a blip in that in my whole life, still to this day. One of these cool moments was he would take me to like 15 rated films and whatever in the cinema, because why not? So, but to do that, he would go and buy the tickets and I'd go hide in the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) And then he would buy the tickets and then come out and he would just have this confidence that when we'd go to, you know, give the ticket stubs to the clerks... Is that the word? I suppose, yeah. Attendance. The attendant. That they wouldn't question that I was underage because it's too one, it's too late by that point. Sales complete, sales final. You know, and two, he, what are they gonna say? It's not like we have you don't have ID for that age, do you? It's not like you have your provisional driver's license or anything, and you're not they're gonna take your passport there. So and it was the end of the nineties. So they, they just didn't question it. So I'd just walk in, I'd always sort of stand on the <laughs> The other side of my dad, you know, trying to be inconspicuous. <laughs> trying to sneak you in, basically. Like, it's like hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, this is an underage child going into this film. And I'm, I'm, we're just going to walk in. Like, nothing's happened. Exactly. Love it. We weren't exactly, like, putting on fake beards or anything. <laughs> dark sunglasses. But I was also, I was quite tall as a kid. So I'll probably just about get away with it. Though I've always had the face of like a cherub. <laughs> like now. Well, this is why I can't clean shave. It's like <laughs> chubby faced cherub boy. They're like six foot. I remember going to the cinema when it wasn't just with my dad. It was my mum, dad and me. And my mum didn't go to the cinema that often. So why She's... did your mum pick this film to go to? Right. So there was a particular reason. We were showing up in support of Meatloaf. Right, okay, of course. Right, so meatloaf is a big deal to my family to the point that my parents have seen him in concert 
no exaggeration, like no less than 40 times, 4-0. That is, they are super fans. And that's not even just in this country. I remember, I remember they were massive fans. Massive fans, because I always remember that you were, like you, you enjoyed the music as well. And you really liked him, which always surprised me because you know it wasn't always someone that you he he was of an era sort of thing that I wouldn't have ever really pegged you to, and like preceded our generation really. He, yeah, so and because I liked a lot of older music and stuff like that, that was kind of one sort of link that we kind of had that you liked someone from kind of that era as well, which was great because um, he's just like a rock icon, <laughs> really. Yeah, like the power ballad like legend that he is. <laughs> Yes. Is in Fight Club. <laughs> yes, he is. This even goes steps further. My parents got married to a Meatloaf song, for crying out loud. When Meatloaf played in Wembley in, I don't know, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, as his tour bus was coming out, like leaving the stadium, my mum stood in front of the tour bus in the middle of the road, like arms out, to stop, to stop the bus, to which it did stop, and then the door opened... And she went round like, with my dad, and there was Meatloaf, sat like right at the front. There he was at the top of the stairs, and they were invited onto the tour bus. My mum jumped on him and like sat on his lap and just started telling him that how much of a fan she was and how much she loved him or whatever. And my dad, who's actually the bigger Meatloaf fan out of the two, was so starstruck, but trying to keep it cool, course. just puts his hand out to shake his hand and just said... Me? <laughs> That's so your dad. <laughs> just like, alright. <laughs> just keeping it casual. Keeping it so cool. While my mum's like on his lap, just being like, you know, do 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 I love this, love that. <laughs> and, um, this is the father of my, my children. I'm not really that fussed by him right now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mr. Meatloaf. <laughs> Meat. <laughs> Had the program, it was like the Bat Out of Hell tour, because he'd just released, he'd released Bat Out of Hell 2 in like the early 90s, but they, on the program, for some reason, it had like the album cover of the original Bat Out of Hell, that's one of the top selling albums of all time, definitely in the top 10, and he signed it for them, and then they have it framed at their house. Oh, fantastic. And then I actually followed in the footsteps, but not really, but I met Meatloaf about three years ago where he did an album signing in HMV in Oxford Street and I went down to to go meet him to get the album signed and I had been rehearsing in my head what I was going to say to him you get like 10 seconds with him and he just sort of signs it you can't get any pictures or anything like that waited in line for three hours and I was just on my own with my iPod listening to Meatloaf songs (laughs) the people that were stood in front of me were kind of rowdy and a bit douchey and I was like they're gonna ruin my experience like they're gonna annoy meatloaf and then he's gonna see me and he's not gonna be interested in me we're not gonna have this golden moment that I've been dreaming of so I had been out queuing for probably like an hour at this point already I thought nah I'm just gonna go to the back of the line so that there's this gap between these douchebags and me so he'll you know get rid of it so I went back so I put an extra like hour on my queue time, and uh, but then when I saw him, I had it all mapped out. I said something like "Hi, Meatloaf." I, I should have just said "Meat." <laughs> I was literally just about to say, "Well, you took the words right out of my mouth." You should have just said that. <laughs> I was going to say you should have just uh, shook his hand and gone "Meat." But <laughs> oh my god, that was like the perfect joke. I know. 
my god <laughs> I'm good at this that was <laughs> this is what I do oh my god <laughs> I'm in shock right now why you got any more uh, when life gives you lemons and all that I'll, 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 I'll be on that in a minute yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant so I said to him my parents got married to for crying out loud your music means a lot to my family like as if like I'm a gangster it means a lot to my family what voice was that? Was that? <laughs> perfect it was perfect <laughs> and he said oh, I've been watching him you know from afar to see how this guy a lot of people haven't even really been looking up you know just been signing because there's so many people to get through sign and go sign and go sign and go he stopped looked up and said and oh, I had some eye contact and literally, I can't really explain it other than, like, my bum just went flappy. Like, <laughs> they came like a salmon out of water, just just flopping around. And he said, if I was there, I'd have been crying like a baby. I said, thank you. And then he signed the album cover, which I have here on my pinboard. And it says, to Simon, cool, meatloaf. Nice. And I'm wondering, I really want to know, did he write cool on everyone's? Because it's like he took a second and then maybe he thought, this guy is cool. So did he call me cool? Is, yeah, absolutely. Is that a co-sign? Cool. Yeah, he called you cool. He, he, do, he doesn't care about anyone else in that queue. Those rowdy douchebags that you moved away from, smart move. Thank you. Uh, and that is commitment. <laughs> that is commitment. To the moment. <laughs> to the moment of, what do I say to this superstar right now? But you should have said, do you remember in the early 90s, my crazed mother jumping in front of your tour bus, <laughs> jumping on the bus, jumping on you, and my dad just going, me, which you should have done, but never mind. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is a missed opportunity. I've got one one more meatloaf story. When I was about 13, something like that, so what, this must have been the early 2000s, he was in the Royal Albert Hall. Me and my mum and dad were there, and he was about two or three songs in, and he had an actual stroke uh, on stage. But Meatloaf is very theatrical and does like little bits in of sort of acting and it sort of plays out the songs. They're like sort of into little stories and whatever. So people thought that it was part of the act to begin with. And then when they were bringing on paramedics and whatever, people started booing, not me or my mum and dad. And then as people were walking out of the stadium and whatever, like early, because obviously the show's ended, people were singing... I want my money back, which is one of his songs. I want my money back. <laughs> Come on, everyone. <laughs> and how harsh is that? We, everyone got a refund or tickets to another show, and he did the show again, and he killed it. Because that's what Meatloaf does. Well, that's that's just arsehole nation, isn't it? That's, that's what people do. Stuff like that that made Brexit a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get political. <laughs> yes. Right. So to the main event. What do you remember about Meatloaf? <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Well, can I just ask? Is there anyone that you or your family have been that fanatical about? Like you're really into like Star Trek, for example. Is there like someone from that that if you saw you would queue up for and that sort of thing I don't know if it's if it's that if I'm that fanatical about something I've been to like a convention with a friend of mine um, having never been to one before and not really knowing what to expect not really knowing you know the type of people that you get at these things other than what you've seen on TV or on film like on TV shows and stuff like that 
And going to those, you see everyone's dressed up. Is there a Star Trek convention, like a Comic-Con? Like a Star Trek one. So everyone is dressed up. Everyone has got, like, Star Trek uniforms on, or they're dressed like the aliens, and they're, like, they go for it. They go for it. And I'm not really, like, into that. I'll just, I just went, I was in jeans and t-shirt, like a hoodie or something like that. So just wandering around just with a friend of mine who loves Star Trek about a billion times more than I do. Not to say I don't like, love it, because I do, but he's just like a super fan. You could show him a still of an episode and he'd tell you exactly what episode it is. Wow. At this point, Dom and I were interrupted by the postman at my front door delivering post. When I came back into the room that we are recording in, me and Dom digressed into a tangent about Postman. Enjoy. He hated us when we first moved here. He's sort of warming up now. <laughs> what did you do to wrong the Postman? Do you know, right, so... <laughs> we, <laughs> we got our front door replaced because it has it had um, a really thin glass in the middle of it. So it's like a security risk. It's really easy to... Uh, smash the window and put your hand in and open the door. Exactly yeah. that. We got the front door replaced, but we decided instead of having a letterbox put in the door... Because I didn't know this, but doors don't come with letterboxes in. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? It's like or custom put in a yeah. yeah. What? <laughs> so, but because we have a dog and she enjoys just chewing the post sometimes, we thought we'd get one that sits on the outside, you know, like next to the front door. Oh, and he didn't like that. Oh. It's like, you sure it fits an A4 envelope? Uh, yes. Oh. I don't. I mean, it does. But he doesn't, he doesn't like that. <laughs> I mean, I have ongoing issues with my postman. Yeah, let's talk about it. In that he folds the post. He'll fold the letter and put it in the letterbox and it'll just sit in the letterbox. Like, he doesn't push it doesn't. all the way through. And then people know you're not in. And then people know you're not in and stuff like that. I haven't even got an issue with the whole not pushing it through thing. I've got an issue with folding the post. Right. The post fits perfectly through the letterbox either way round. Like, not just... Do you mean uh, A5? But is he folding A5? So you get an envelope like this. So I have an example in my hand, which unfortunately <laughs> you can't see. So the letterbox is, is on the door. Yeah. The letter fits in that way. Yeah. Ways. Yeah. And lengthways, oh, without yeah. any issue. He has no need to fold the letter. What's he doing? He then? does it every time. I actually sent pictures. <laughs> what? <laughs> I sent a picture... To Royal Mail. Oh my god. Of the folded post. <laughs> right. Because you know when you get a little bugbear? Yeah. It's like really annoys you. This really wound me up. I can tell. So I actually sent a picture of the folded letter. Then I sent a picture of the letter lengthways <laughs> what, next you... to the letterbox saying <laughs> it fits perfectly. He doesn't need to fold it. You sent evidence and examples of you putting pretend post in and out of the It was the box. same letter that and he had folded. folded. So you showed that it just didn't need to be yeah, folded. and it fit perfectly. Have you spoken to him about it? Like, have you caught him? Stop <laughs> talking to him about it. What? <laughs> ridiculous. Oh, but sending something to the Royal Mail is fine. I can just imagine you, him like folding it through the letterbox and you from the other side just grabbing his hand. <laughs> pulling <laughs> Put it through. Don't fold it. <laughs> If you go to a shop and yeah. you get bad service, do you tell the person behind the, the counter that they're giving you bad service or do you tell their boss? Interesting point. Depends what it is. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes 
I'll tell that person, not if it's in food service, because, you know... Why? What's your point? You would you just tell the manager. You go, you supersede them and go over their heads. It's about corrective action, isn't it? So you've got to find the person above them to say, this is the mistake that they're making. You need to go and get them to fix it, basically. If you it's, trust... it's not for me as a, as a customer or consumer to turn around and say, you're doing that wrong. It's for me to say to, to the person in charge, I don't agree with the way this has been done. I don't think it's right. I think you need to deal with it. And they'll go, okay, and they'll make that judgment. So Royal Mail needed to know that this is what's happening. Don't laugh at me. I'm not. I am not. <laughs> Royal, Mail, Royal Mail needed to know this was what was happening. And that I was very upset about something completely irrelevant in the world. Well, it's not irrelevant to you. So I mean, it is really, isn't it? But it wasn't, it wasn't just be... one occasion, though. This was all the time. This <laughs> is, this, it got to a point where it was all the time. But the things that are being folded, are they things that... It doesn't been, matter about the contents been... of the letter. <laughs> Does not matter. That is my letter. That is my post. Stop happy. But has have they been? Has the contents been ruined due to the fold? It's an uncomfortable read. <laughs> Creases everywhere. Creases that aren't meant to be there. Fair. There's already a fold in the letter because it's in an envelope. I don't want an additional one that you've made, mate. Mm. Should we get back to the film now? Sorry. Should... Yes. Cut all that out. You know that, that I, you know that I won't. <laughs> <laughs> you know that we could have a three-hour podcast talking about Royal Mail and how I'm really upset with them. That's good. Maybe I'm not upset with them anymore. I think we might have a new postman. I think my my I've you know my actions have made a difference to my street. Or you just made him unemployed. <laughs> it's made a difference to my street. No one's getting folded post anymore, Simon. <laughs> People are saluting you down the street. Thank you, Dom. My post is pristine. Leader of change. So you went to this film with your parents. Wait, wait. Let's go back to that bit. No, no, this is important to me. Okay. Because you went to the film with your parents because Meatloaf is in the film, so that's why your mum went. Your mum never goes to cinema. And this is... I, I can imagine... So you're about 12 years old when you're seeing this film. Yeah. Because it was 99, right? Yeah. So you, as a 12-year-old, illegally in this film, or yeah. like, you know, under parental guidance... Watching a film that contains quite a lot of graphic detail, not only about fighting, but quite a lot of sexual scenes as well. Hashtag awkward moment. Very. <laughs> but when later on, sort of halfway through the film, where Tyler is just continually having coitus with Marla, that's that's awkward. That's awkward moments. That's, that's all good. Especially when, you know, I'm not really sure what's happening at this point. I'm not sure if, if we've had the conversation around, you know, coitus and how that goes. I mean, have you had that conversation at 12? Do you know what's going on? Uh, I'm 32 and I haven't had that conversation. <laughs> so, let's hope that never happens. I <laughs> would pay really good money. That's an omnibus. <laughs> statement to be a fly on the wall and watch your dad have that <laughs> conversation with you why, why do you hate me what's what? that about what I just your dad is one of the funniest people without necessarily you know knowing knowing uh, one of my favorite memories of your dad is we were watching him play resident evil 3 is it like return of the nemesis or some 
Yeah, I don't know. Do you remember? Do you remember what I'm about to say? And he had this big mini gun, <laughs> and he turns this corner, and just I don't know some zombie or something, and he says, "Hello, I know you." He <laughs> <laughs> just like mows it down. I was just. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was just so funny. It's funny because I was talking to Dave about. I was giving a day. Uh, I was giving David lift home the other day. This is our mutual friend. Our Dave. mutual friend. He also was around in the nineties and went to our same primary school. Absolutely. Just for context. And there was someone else in the car as well. My neighbour was in the car, and we're driving. So we play, all play football. Wait, do you live on your street? My next door neighbour. Oh my god. Actual like. So he also has folded post. Touching houses. Yeah, I've saved his post. Touching houses. <laughs> <laughs> I've saved his post. So I. Uh, he knows my dad. And obviously Dave knows my dad. And Dave's... Um, I'd made a comment about my dad or something like that. And Dave said exactly what you just said. I remember watching your dad play Resident Evil. We weren't allowed to play. No. <laughs> <laughs> he played. We watched. Was it your PlayStation? Was it like just a family PlayStation? It was always described as a family PlayStation that my dad owned basically <laughs> we, we didn't play it <laughs> but it wasn't like gifted to you at Christmas or anything and Did, then like oh actually why don't we put that in the living room the original Playstation we got yeah so the first Playstation that came out that was a Christmas gift to you to me and my brother okay that ended up being downstairs because we didn't have a TV upstairs right okay. by this point and then my dad just played it all the time and then the PlayStation 2 was a similar thing. So I think my my mum and dad had got it for like Harry. And that ended up living downstairs. And then after that, my dad just got them. He bought them himself. Does he still play video games now? He hasn't for a while. Does he have like a PS4? Or yeah. Whatever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's his. Yeah. Loves Assassin's Creed. I love that. Loves Assassin's Creed. Plays it all the time. My dad used to play... Uh, N64 with me and like Goldeneye and things but I don't think I would have ever caught my dad just like playing a bit of Goldeneye or Super Smash Bros or anything but that's that's brilliant that's a brilliant memory I can't remember how we got to this oh I'd love to see your dad having a conversation with you about the birds and the bees just because he's a man of fewer words I guess and I mean how would you portray that conversation going I would walk out the room. It would be so uncomfortable. Probably for him as well. <laughs> you wouldn't really know what to say, would he? Really, really? I don't know. You do know. He wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> it would be awful. One of my other favourite <laughs> memories of your dad was that on a random once, he took you and me when I was staying, like sleeping over at your house, he took us to see Blue Streak at the cinema with Martin Lawrence. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. I just remember being like, this is amazing. Like, you know, it's like a very unexpected, like, we thought we were just, like, jamming that night and not going anywhere. And then he was just like, should we go see Blue Street? Okay, yes, please. <laughs> and we went, and I loved that film. It was a great film, wasn't it? I, very funny. Was it 99? Please Ooh, be in 99. Don't know. Can add it in. That'd be great. Yes, I'm not sure if I fully understood sex ever, but at this point... <laughs> Even now. Uh, yeah, even now. I'm still <laughs> just rummaging around. 
Bah. Fumble in the dark. <laughs> Hope for the best. <laughs> was it good for you? I'd, who knows? <laughs> I'd, I'd forgot you were here. certain that I didn't really you know sort of get what was going on especially like lines that we'll talk about later when we eventually get in. <laughs> I mean I knew that it wasn't like he was murdering her in the <laughs> opera <room. laughs> but I wouldn't really grasp but I knew it was uncomfortable shall we talk about Fight Club yeah let's talk about Fight Club <laughs> so this was your choice because uh, you know We've discussed in the Saving Private Ryan episode that you are a heartless cold man and you then, don't enjoy fun. So you are, <laughs> let's go with Fight Club. Well, my actual reason behind it, I thought it, it would be, other than the dead inside thing, um, I thought it would be um, like quite a neutral film. Well, only in that it's not like one of my favourite films and I've never heard you talk about it. So I didn't ever expect it to be like high up on the list of your favourite films. So I thought it's quite a neutral one to talk about because we'd be, probably be a lot more objective. So all the, the films that we've covered so far, you've loved two of them. I've loved one of them. So I thought, next choice, maybe just pick one that's kind of middle of the road for both of us and we can then have our opinions about how good it is, how bad it is, you know, whatever, whatever we want to say. That's a good point. And I did feel that watching it. So I watched it last night. <laughs> And I felt a lot more objective about it. Like, I don't have any particular emotional connection to it. Mm. So, yeah, this will be interesting. So it was released on the 15th of October 1999, which is right towards the end of our decade. So it's just crept in. It had a budget of $63 million and it grossed $100 million at the box office. This was actually seen as a bit of a flop, which... It's crazy, I didn't realise that, and I'll get onto that a little bit later. It's directed by David Fincher. Just to go back to what we sort of benchmark as a really successful film, and you said in the last episode in Celtic Pride that Saving Private Ryan grossed like 450-something like that million dollars, and then Celtic Pride grossed just over $9 million, which we said couldn't really pay for the catering so this has got a hundred million dollars so ten times the gross of Celtic Pride but less than a quarter of Saving Private Ryan just for some sort of context in there mad didn't it so it's directed by David Fincher who also has directed Seven with Brad Pitt again and Morgan Freeman have you seen Seven? not all the way through but the majority yeah it's a good film what's in the box? Did you see that bit? I've seen that bit. <laughs> the Game with Michael Douglas. That's a good one. Panic Room. Seen Panic Room. Jodie Foster, Forrest Whitaker. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. And a young uh, girl from Twilight. The Eyebrows. <laughs> eyebrows from Twilight. You know what I'm talking about. Kirsten Dunn. Nope. Kirsten Bell. Nope. Kirsten, Kirsten Bell? Kirsten Bell. Kirsten, it's Bell something. Kristen Bell. Keith Bell. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you want to explain anything about no, Keith? No, no, it's better this way. Okay. Keith Fur used to live on my street. It's a lovely guy. <laughs> you saved his post. If he, you know, he doesn't probably doesn't live. He hasn't lived there for a long time. No. Benjamin Button with Brad Pitt Another again. Brad Pitt film. Gone Girl. Great film. Ben Affleck and Rosamund Ros- 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 Pike. <laughs> You're not really good at remembering the female protagonist names, are we? Were you trying to insinuate? <laughs> Mate. Yeah. The Social Network. Oh, that's a good film. I really like The Social Network. Jesse Eisenberg and... Justin Timberlake. And who's the female? Don't prove me, don't prove me wrong, <laughs> right? Don't prove, prove me right. Damn it. Who's the female... Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Is it Emma Stone? Is it Emma Stone in the when in the lawyer room bit? Yeah. You don't like, have any no. friends or something. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. No. I think. She, ah, Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones, of The Office fame and Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. David Finch has been nominated for two Oscars. He's never won an Academy Award. Both are for Best Director. Of those films, which ones do you think he's been nominated for? Of the ones I just mentioned. Social Network. Yeah, that's one. And I'll go for Seven. No. Was it Panic Room? No. Oh, okay, thank God for that. Benjamin Button. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I was actually surprised that this didn't... He didn't get nominated for this, because... Well, we'll get on to that, but I thought it was very good. Well, like you said, because it was a bit of a flop. Or seen as a bit of a flop. People people didn't like it when it first came out, did they? Mm. And he like missed out on loads of awards by like silly films like Ten Things I Hate About You, won an award at Over Fight Club. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, Heath Ledger, come on. Hey, I do really <laughs> like Heath Ledger. I I need to watch that again. Actually, Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah. Shakespeare, modern day Shakespeare, Taming of the Shrew. Really? Yeah. I definitely need to watch it again. It's a reboot of Taming the Tree, basically. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. The book Fight Club is written by Charles Polinick. I think I'm saying that right. Apologies if I'm not. You're giving me the Robert De Niro face. (laughs) (laughs) And then Jim Oles, again, I hope I'm saying that right. Apologies if I'm not. Then wrote the screenplay adaptation of the book. The studio executive's reaction to the movie was that they did not like the film and they actually pulled the budget for the marketing campaign to reduce anticipated losses. Wow. Yeah, which actually doesn't really make sense to me. You'd think you'd want to just push it to try and get more people to go. But I guess maybe if they, they're worried about reputation of the production company, maybe they don't want to be that you know associated with the, with the movie. There's, there's that, but you've got... I suppose when you're in, in that position and you're making something that costs so much money, you have to make a decision as to if we're going to recoup any cost, we have to pay the actors, you have to pay the talent, you have to pay the crew, you have to pay the studio, you have to you pay for all of that. That's set. That's contractual. You've got no option of that. But one thing you can take away is the marketing. It's actually, you know, we'll advertise it a bit, but we don't have to put... We don't have to have a massive trailer. We don't have to have posters everywhere. We don't have to have this drop and that drop. You know, we can just go, just put a poster out and we're not going to do 
10 different types of posts, so we'll just do the one and we'll, we'll release that. We'll just release it to the cinemas, we'll release it to, and then we'll see how we get on. So you're kind of recouping your, it's like a safety net, isn't it? Like recoup the money as, as best as you can. But like you said, it's that double-edged sword, isn't it? Because the less you shout about it, the less people are going to be interested in going to see it. So, yes. Yeah, polarised critics, as you just sort of said a second ago, but it found its success once it was released to DVD and home video and eventually went on to become a cult classic. So it's one of those that built up momentum over time. The cast include Edward Norton, who plays the unnamed narrator. This may sound foolish, and I have seen Fight Club since watching it awkwardly when I was 12. I actually watched it a couple of months ago, and I never realised that he is unnamed the whole way through. I just didn't know what his name was, like the character's name. I didn't realise that it's intentionally left out. Like, did, did you know that? Uh, I knew he didn't have a name, but I, I suppose, on reflection, I always just assumed that his name was Tyler Durden. Right. Because of Brad Pitt's name being Tyler Durden. So because he doesn't really know who he is, and he doesn't know who Brad Pitt is, that it's just a, it's like a weird image of, of who he wants to be, isn't it? And he's kind of given him that name. So I just assumed that he's Ed Norton Tyler Durden and Brad Pitt Tyler Durden. Same name. Yeah. Well, I did the deep dive research into the film before watching it. So I was seeing these parts that he doesn't have a name, etc, etc. And then watching the film after that, you can see that they just intentionally leave out his name. Like there's parts where towards the beginning where Marla's like, so what's your name? And then the scene just cuts. So I, I, my assumption is, yeah, so he isn't Tyler Durden. Or he might be. I don't know. I guess it's left ambiguous. I never noticed what he hands out business card, doesn't he? He gives her a business card. But yes, yeah, he does. Because they exchange telephone numbers, don't they? Yeah. I wonder what it says on that. I don't think it's close enough to see it. Yeah. Interesting. I never really clocked, I suppose, yeah. Brad, uh, so Edward Norton is also in American History X which we actually talked about on one of our other podcasts. Oh, because in Saving Private Ryan, because he chose to do American History X instead of being yeah, Ryan. Ryan. And he was also in Primal Fear. Have you seen Primal Fear? No. With Richard Gere. Spoiler alert. Do you mind if I spoil this for you? I don't mind. Because it's just great context for the, Go for it. For the podcast. In Primal Fear, he plays someone with multiple personalities. So he's got experience. <laughs> you could say... <laughs> Brad Pitt, who's at this point been in Seven, Thelma and Louise, Twelve Monkeys, Legends of the Fall. This is kind of a push forward to Brad Pitt to being in that leading man role, but in, in a different way. I guess it's a juxtaposition to the main protagonist, which you would say is Edward Norton. But this was a push into him doing a different type of film and people viewing him in a different light. I mean, what, what do you think? I suppose it's not as... I don't know his back catalogue as well, but, you, you know, you kind of look at the films that he's done and this is probably one of the most, like, gritty films he's done. I mean, Seven's on that scale, but that's probably more to do with director and Twelve Monkeys as well, I suppose. So I think maybe he's, like, by this point, he's reached the era of, like, gritty films and this kind of topped it off. So then I think after that, he goes into films like Snatch and stuff like that. Which almost like tones it down a bit, and then he moves into the marrying Angelina Jolie phase and a bit more comedy and maybe a bit more light-hearted. I don't. Know. It's just kind of I feel like he's in the mid 
to late nineties is like Brad Pitt grit. We call it. There you go. It could be the title of another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was definitely expanding his repertoire, you could say. And he chose to do Fight Club, coming off the back of Meet Joe Black, which was seen as a flop. And he wanted to distance himself from that sort of movie. So mm. this was definitely going in a different direction. We have Helena Bonham Carter, who is very famous. And I just have her in my notes. All Tim Burton films. It's because she's married to him. Yes. Or was. Yes, it was. So I looked this up. So they were in a relationship and married for a while, but they're separated now. And she's with someone else. But she's been in loads of films like that and lots of films with Johnny Depp because he's also in all Tim Burton films she's in Harry Potter as well Harry Potter she does a lot of these sort of character acting freaky weird character yeah yeah (laughs) hopefully she'd see that as a compliment I I think that's a compliment that's not a bad thing no she's a a great actress and she's great in this yeah and then Meatloaf and I just have here hell yes (laughs) Jared Leto as well. Fight Club was just before a massive movie run for him. So he did Fight Club and then went on to do Girl Interrupted, American Psycho, Reckon for a Dream, which are all quite serious and but also well-regarded films. And he'd only been with, like, 30 Seconds to Mars. had only been together a year by the time Fight Club had come out. So there's a little nod to that, isn't there? Yes. When he gets called a rock star. Yeah. In the film, yeah. Yeah. With regards to themes, there's this whole thing about Generation X, which is, you know, them in the film at the time. And they have this angst of being the middle children of history. So it's mentioned a few times in the film that, you know, they don't have this great war to be fighting, like in the Second World War and, I don't know, other wars. And they kind of have it easy. So they're based on consumerism, and that's what they're fixated on. Mm -hmm. And that's what eventually Tyler Durden and Edward Norton they're trying to appease I guess a couple bits of trivia there's so much trivia on this film again like Saving Private Ryan uh, this is a very dense film and a lot going on in each scene it's very layered so I've got some trivia but it could have gone on for days so if you want to find out more there's tons on the internet (laughs) as there is for everything so here's some tidbits let me know what you think. The narrator is an unreliable narrator as he is unaware that he is projecting Tyler. So there are things from Edward Norton's perspective, the narrator's perspective, that we can't trust during the film. And this is quite untypical because usually as the audience, we're watching it and taking scenes in for what they are and we assume it to be true. But on repeat watching, you can see how things are misconstrued yeah I suppose it's um, because he doesn't fully understand who he is and know who he is then as an audience member or someone watching it you're kind of not really sure where you are with the characters where you are with the film and if that's intentional that's great I think that's quite a clever directorial decision and like way of filmmaking and misleads us as the audience so it sort of hides in plain sight like me at 12 going into the <laughs> cinema the twist at yeah. the end, which is one of the greatest film twists, which is another thing about the cinema visit that I've completely forgotten. So I'm 12, sat in the cinema, mum and dad, and literally, no joke, 10 minutes into the film, my dad leans over to my mum, and I were to hear and says, he's schizophrenic. <laughs> now, 
This is infamous because he did the same thing 10 minutes into the sip sense in the cinema and went over and went, he's dead. <laughs> and, and my mum was so angry. So angry. Is your mum angry that he, he ruined the film or angry that he got it right? No, just that he ruined the film because he could have just held on to it. But my dad had to say it to be like, so you know afterwards, so I can claim credit for this, because anyone can say at the end of the film, oh yeah, I knew the whole time. Well, well done. But watching it back is very obvious. Well, it's only obvious because you know, but even the opening lines is, I know this because Tyler knows this. The studio wanted someone like Matt Damon to be the narrator, so Edward Norton's character, but Fincher wanted Edward Norton. It all ties back. All we need to do is find a link to Smart House. <laughs> the casting for Tyler was between Brad Pitt and take a guess. So we've taken a second because Dom has just got a coronavirus alert on his phone. Alert. If you have a cough, a fever or shortness of breath and think you're at risk of coronavirus, please contact NHS 111. Do not come to the surgery. So my surgery, doctor surgery, sent me out a, a warning. About coronavirus. Oh, very nice of them. Thank you. That is nice. I don't think I've got coronavirus. I feel fine. That's good. Don't edge away from me. <laughs> actually got I didn't get any messages. <laughs> so, Dom, the casting for Tyler was between Brad Pitt and what actor? Take a guess. I know. It's Russell Crowe. It was Russell Crowe. <laughs> you read it? Oh, I read it, yeah. Sorry. No, it's good. What do you think of that? Would, would Russell Crowe have been good in that role? No. Agree. <laughs> Brad Pitt voluntarily went to a dentist to have some of his front teeth chipped so that Tyler wouldn't have perfect teeth. His teeth were then fixed in post-production. That's, that, that's mental. That's dedication, isn't it? That's, that's getting involved, isn't it? That's, that's, <laughs> I want this role. We already had it. Yeah. He voluntarily decided to do it. It was his own decision. He already had the role. He got paid over $17 million for it. Not to have his teeth done, not for the role. That's crazy though, right? Mm. This was nominated for one Academy Award. Can you guess what category? Ooh, I'm going to say makeup. Close. Best effects. Oh, okay. It is in the IMDb top 250 movies of all time. If you can remember, I think Saving Private Ryan was like 29, was it? 23? Is in the 20s. In the 20s. Yeah. What number do you think Fight Club is? I think it's going to be lower, so I'm going to say 48. It's actually 11. Wow. I know. Really? I know. Fantastic. <laughs> I was I was surprised by that, considering it was... Where like, was Smart House in the list? Well, actually, Dom, <laughs> I think that you have to have a theatrical release to get awards, like Academy Awards and things. So I'm assuming, Dom, that they had to... They wouldn't be eligible for the IMDb Top 250... You're right. You're absolutely right. I can only apologise for my error. Peach Cobbler. <laughs> oh, Peach Cobbler. So we played this game on the last episode of Celtic Pride, so now it's time to flip the table on you. What score do you think it gets on IMDb? 8.3.
Close, 8.8. Oh. And on Rotten Tomatoes? 92. 79%. Oh, okay. So not as high as uh, Saving Private Ryan, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so in Japan, due to censorship, there is no penis flash at the end of the film. Excellent. <laughs> but is there the one Japanese in the middle of the were spared of the penis. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. It didn't say that. I'm assuming it must have been censored there as well. Must have been. The author, Charles, came up with the idea for the book after being beaten up on a camping trip when he complained to some nearby campers about the volume of their radio. When he returned to work, so like with his injuries and black eye or whatever, because people would have to interact with him on a personal level, no one asked him about his injuries. Well, no one questioned it? No one questioned, oh, what happened to your face, anything like that, because then they would have to talk to him basically. So he referred to this as societal blocking, and this became the basis of the book. Wow. Charles says that the movie is actually an improvement on his book. Wow. Which I think is quite nice, because most authors probably don't feel that way. Didn't quite a lot of people have a hand in the screenplay, though. So when they're writing it for the, to make it the film, there's a lot of different people adding bits and stuff like that. Because like, I know that Brad Pitt and Edward Norton made like amendments that were like unofficial but then got included so this is my favorite one my favorite bit of trivia the visible breath in the cave scene so you know when edward norton's in the cave and is with the penguin with the penguin yeah slide (laughs) in that scene his breath that's visible was composited into the shot and was actually leonardo dicaprio's breath from titanic what they stole the graphics yeah that and composited into the shot wow random which is funny because edward norton and leonardo dicaprio are actually really good friends in real life are they so they got the same breath they had the same breath <laughs> so you could say leonardo dicaprio had a cameo in fight club meatloaf um, what <laughs> i mean the graphics did leonardo oh you're questioning me <laughs> i am yeah Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't in it. His breath was in it. Breath that was produced. Oh, you're saying it's already fake breath. Yeah. (laughs) Meatloaf's fat suit was filled with birdseed so that it would hang right and was extremely heavy. Wow. Brad Pitt and Edward Norton both hated the new Volkswagen Beetle because there must have been like the new shape came out. Oh, when they go in and smashing the front of them up. Yeah. Baseball bats and stuff. They insisted that one of those cars had to be a Beetle. (laughs) What I noticed this time about that scene is they leave a car in the middle. Like Brad Pitt's like, oh no, leave that one. And it's a Ford. And I wonder if uh, the car behind was like a Honda or something. And then the car in front was a VW. I wonder if they were not hitting the Ford because it was American. That was the only reason I could think of. Why would you not hit the Ford? Unless it was a, a nice car. Well, it might have been that it was like an older car, maybe, and they were thinking, well, don't do it to that person because they're not a consumer or they don't have that much money or whatever. Yeah, maybe. In theory. So I could go on and on and on and on and on, but let's get in to Fight Club. Just very quickly before that, you said that um, Brad Pitt got paid 17 million or 17 and a half million to be in the film. Do you know how much Edward Norton got paid? No. Two million. Oh. They're... they're like literally they went Edward Norton we want you to be in this film because David Fincher wants you to be in the film here's what we're going to offer you and he went yeah great I'll take it 
And then Brad, when they asked Brad Pitt to be, or when Brad Pitt went to be in it, he was like, "This is what I want." So they went, "Yeah, okay." So the division of money between them is just like mountains apart, just worlds apart. Do you think then Brad Pitt thought, oh my God, I have to do something. Dentist, chip my teeth out. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to use this money somewhere. <laughs> That's crazy. That's a huge disparity. Hmm. Good fact. Okay, so let's dive into Fight Club. The opening scene is quite aggressive opening credits. It's very loud. It's like heavy rock. Just Brothers, isn't it? Music. Yeah, by the Just Brothers. Of course. Yeah. Every, I think a lot of people think it's the Chemical Brothers, but it's not. They're called Just Brothers. Because no. they're no chemical here. They're no. Just Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's who does the music, and it's very, yeah, like, it's quite... Bah, 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 that kind of thing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And we're weaving through graphics that is sort of inside of his brain, of the narrator's brain, and sort of comes out through his face and then falls onto the gun and got the gun being pointed into his mouth. Well, we start with Edward Norton's monotone, flat sort of voice, which is rich coming from me, yes, I'm aware. But <laughs> I don't want to say. <laughs> no one's listening to this because they're all asleep. <laughs> Unlike Edward Norton in this film. Yes, good callback. <laughs> He's explaining the, the situation, that there's explosives in this building and... Then he's questioning about whether the gun is clean that's in his mouth. And then he says what we alluded to earlier, that I know this information because Tyler knows this information. It's a good intro and we're starting, you know, towards the end of the film. Which is something you don't get sort of as often as, as you're probably used to, I think, now. In terms of film starting at the end and then working out that you go, then you jump back and come back to the beginning again. The beginning is the end, basically. It's a bit like a Pulp Fiction kind of introduced that a lot, didn't it? Yeah. What was pivotal in introducing that style. We then move into the narrator, Edward Norton, explaining how it all began, sort of taking it back to the beginning. Now, we have an unreleased pilot episode of Goodfellas, and in that episode we discussed and we debated who Ray Liotta's character is telling the story to, because through Goodfellas he is narrating the story in I had a theory that he was telling it to the authorities at the end of the story and you were, your theory was that he's just telling us as the audience member, right? Mm. In this, who do you think the narrator is telling the story to? That's, that's a really good question because I hadn't actually considered it at all. Even watching it, I think he's not... Like, I don't know who he's discussing this with. So now you've said that, now you've broached this question. So initially it's he's telling us as the person watching it but yeah, now I'm thinking: Is he talking to a therapist? Is he is he talking to the police because he's been arrested for for essentially blowing up all those buildings? You know, you know I suppose there's a lot of avenues that you go down with that, isn't it? What about you? I think he might be telling Marla at the end of the film, explaining. He says, "You met me at a very interesting period of my life, or something like that." Right at the end, and I figure maybe he's telling her back. What, what happened, how this came to be. Oh, yeah, so that's, yeah, are there little nuggets like that that I've not really picked up on? I've, I've just, maybe I just skipped over them and just didn't really think anything of it and haven't really taken the dialogue for what it is because, maybe because he's so unreliable as a narrator that it's just like, he's just saying all this, that and the other. Because there's scenes in the film, there's one coming up later on that we'll talk about where, like, he talks about, 
you know, when he's putting the film and he's editing the film, there's a bit in there that doesn't fit, doesn't work right with the dialogue and with the action. Oh, interesting. Well, in that in that sequence of scenes, he's also breaking the fourth wall and yeah. speaking directly to us. And again, I don't know how I feel about it, but we'll we'll touch on it when we get there. Because we talked about that in the Goodfellas one that was unreleased. But I I like it. I like it when they do that. They look right at you and say, "This is what's going on." You're like, "Oh, okay." Getting a bit of explanation here. I like it. You like the Zach Morris, <laughs> Zach Morris fourth wall break. <laughs> We actually then move to the narrator, Edward Norton. Should we just call him Edward Norton for ease, or should we call him the narrator? Well, both. Sure. So, Edward Norton, the narrator... It you goes... don't have to say both, just say... <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> to Edward Norton's face being cushioned into meatloaf's breasts, and his, his testicular cancer support group... And Meatloaf, we later find out, was a juicer, so someone that did a lot of steroids. And then, I don't know if, I'm assuming that's not what gave him testicular cancer, but had testicular cancer and had to have his... Basically, be castrated. His testicular, yeah, had to have his testicular yeah. removed. And then I, he, think, I think that is what gave him, he said, I think that's the reason why he brings it up. His body had to make up for estrogen or something like that, and so that he developed breasts... Well, it's the, the pure amount of chemicals that are in his body from the steroids and all the drugs that he's taking have then caused him problems and has essentially created the testicular cancer. And then taking them away, his hormones are all wrong, aren't they? Because he hasn't got testosterone anymore. Right. Or nothing that's naturally producing testosterone. So he, it, it, I think then estrogen then just takes over, doesn't it? And then essentially he starts growing breasts as well, and, yeah, basically. And Ch- changes his body massively, doesn't it? fake breasts or bodysuit or whatever weighed over a hundred pounds so it was like a lot of pressure on meatloaf's back worried about my friend meat (laughs) make sure he's all right but then the narrator says actually wait let's go back a bit further and then it goes into him explaining that he's suffering from insomnia and that it's very difficult when you can't sleep it's not like you're ever fully awake and you're never fully asleep just in this middle zone and his photocopying at work and this is where we get the first flash of Brad Pitt's character Tyler Durden and I freeze framed it to try and see if he was doing anything um, funny or anything but in this one he's just stood in the leather red leather jacket and it literally you can tell that he wasn't actually there in the scene they have done like what he does later in the film where he's just composited that shot on top of it it's interesting i want to discuss with you when we get there about the outfit change because he's pretty much wearing the same sort of outfit throughout the first two acts of the film and then in the third act when we don't see him for a while and he comes back with the shaved head i couldn't i didn't i wasn't sure if there was a particular reason for that everyone on project mayhem was shaving their head didn't they ah of course so I, i thought it was just like a uniformity thing but he doesn't wear like the black that they all wear. Mm. He's in a set very differently. And he's in like a weird like vest, isn't he? Yeah, some sort of like faded tie-dye sort of vest. Yeah, but he's supposed to be the complete opposite of Edward Norton, isn't he? Because it's who you want to be. When he says, I, you know, I'm smarter on this. I... It's, and you probably know better than me because you have um, a background in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's all shot and that's the whole film actually feels like it's shot with some sort of not like lens but like a layer of this sort of grey blue over the top of it like if it's got a filter on the top yeah yeah it definitely feels like that all the way through there's a certain theme it's like when you watch films like The Matrix it's feel, it feels very green doesn't it and it's like that and then this this is a similar similar type like a dull blue everything obviously is in focus and whatever it's almost like bits can be a bit like blurred it's almost like seeing it from his perspective that things are a little bit hazy mm. so he's discussing about his insomnia and he goes to the doctor to talk about insomnia and he wants medication and the doctor basically says chew on some sort of root or something and get more exercise and he's like, but doctor, I'm in pain. He said, if you want to see pain, go see the testicular cancer group on Tuesdays at whatever place. You know, that's pain. And this is where we get the second flash of Tyler Durden. I tried so hard to freeze frame it, but I couldn't actually get it. But from what I can see, again, it's not really doing anything. Uh, yeah, not... I think it's like initial stages of his, this other side of him, this other, you know, part of his brain coming out, isn't it? So it's just like flickers. Because I, I think there's one point where it happens. It might even be in that scene where it happens and then Edward Norton kind of has a look. Like, what was that? And then carries on. Like the kids do in the film later on, you know, when he splices the extra bit of film in, shall we say. Yeah. And there's that hang on a minute, what did I just see? And I'm pretty sure Edward Norton does that. He's like, what was that? And then carries on about his walking out of the hospital or whatever. We get to the next scene. This is one of my favourites where he is on the toilet and he's ordering things from the Ikea catalogue. Mm. But it's not actually called Ikea in the film. It's called like Furnica or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's got he does, But he does actually say Ikea, the Ikea nesting something or other. And I love this shot as he's walking through his apartment and it's all popping up with the description and the price and everything like it does in the catalogue and how he is consumed with consumerism. If he sees a yin-yang table that's something smart and different, he has to have it. And all of this stuff plays back into the film later. He goes to his fridge, there's nothing but condiments. He's living like a hollow life, really. Yeah, it's just, it's displaying like pure consumerism, but especially for, it's like everyone has a, a bit of Ikea furniture. And it's almost like them. It's their way of saying it's everywhere, and it will get it will get you somehow. And then with him, it's really got him. Everything, every part of his life is purchased from a catalogue. He can't get away from that, and he's obsessed by it. And like you said, has to have the newest, latest thing and the nice, shiny yin yang table. And yeah, you know, he's always after that, like the, all the matching bowls and plates and all of that that he's got as well. The bowls and plates where he said. The bowls and plates that have the imperfect bubbles in so you know that they were handmade. That one cut deep with me because I've got some of them. I <laughs> see <laughs> everyone's got IKEA. Well, that's that's the thing is that everyone thinks they're being so unique, but we actually all have uniformed homes. Hmm. Like Everyone just has a different version of, of the same thing, I guess. Consumerism gone mad. We then move through to back to the support groups, remaining men together, which is a support group for men with testicular cancer, which is super sad. We then move to another support group and it's like a meditation. And this is where we're introduced to the idea of having a safe place, your power animal, and Edward Norton's is a penguin that, as we said earlier, says, 
Slide. And then we're introduced to Leonardo DiCaprio's non-breath from Titanic. Absolutely. What did you make of Penguin? I didn't really get that side of it. I didn't. That's one part of the film that I thought if you took it out, it wouldn't make any difference. It didn't need to be in the film for me. Irrelevant. Yeah. I understand why he's at the support groups and stuff like that, why he keeps going to these support groups. And he's sitting there and it's part of it and it's sit there and imagine you're walking into your cave and and you see something walking towards you and it's an animal and that's your power animal and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden it's just this random penguin that goes, slide! And then slides and I think it's just like, okay, we've gone full crazy already. But yeah, I'm not sure it was entirely necessary in my, my point of view, but someone might turn around and say actually it's pivotal to the film because it was the turning point of his lunacy sort of thing or whatever, I don't know, you know. But I, I'm not a... I didn't see the point in it. You yeah, know. no, I agree. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so we're introduced to the concept that Edward Norton is going to a lot of these groups and he is finding comfort. He sort of explains later that when people think you're dying, they actually listen to you, which plays into what the author of the book was saying, that people aren't paying any attention and this is adding poignancy to what the person's saying. And it, it's... A release for him as well, isn't it? Because he cries, and it's the first time he's cried in how like years. And he then explains that he can now sleep like a baby. So you, you you see so many shots of him being awake and not really knowing he's awake, and he's just all over. He's a right old mess. And then he has his first like proper cry with meatloaf, and then you see that he's just absolutely flat out sleeps like a baby, and that's it. And it's it's really working for him, um, which is then when he goes into all these other groups. And that's when he discusses it becoming an addiction. And he's, like, developing these problems already. <laughs> well, and then this is where we're introduced to Marla, who is Helena Bonham Carter's character, who Edward Norton describes as a... Tourist. And she also doesn't have whatever the... Well, she doesn't have testicular cancer. She certainly does not. <laughs> and he is so disturbed and angered by this even though he's doing the exact same thing and I love the way that he's just like staring at her with daggers while she's smoking cigarettes and so on and so forth I think she smokes at every group she's just continuously smoking and she says at one of them that the smoking doesn't go down well with like lung cancer or tuberculosis or something isn't it <laughs> that's when they're doing the group trade off isn't it so he Edward Norton identifies her as a Tourist hates the fact that she's come to all the, the same groups that he's in because she because he knows sorry that she's a faker, like he's a faker and it's bothering him and it's stopping him from sleeping again. And what he wants is just for her to not be there and go away. And he basically says, "You need to stop coming to these because you know I'll expose you." And she's like, "Well, shut up! I'll expose you." She says, "I saw you practicing this <laughs> this speech, telling me off. Is it yeah. going as well as you'd hoped?" <laughs> but she's a good match for him because she is a clever, intelligent character, as he is as well. So they do marry up quite well. And she's quite bold as well. So it, all the actions that she takes, all the things that she does, although there's scenes later on where she's a bit like ropey, but in in this particular part. She like walks into a laundrette, doesn't she, and just takes a load of clothing. And he's like, "You've left half your clothing." And then she just walks into another shop and sells them. You know, she just she does not care, and she will do anything to to make money and keep stay happy, sort of thing, or what her version of happy anyway. And in that scene, she's walking across the street, walking in front of the cars, and not caring about it. Like she's 
very loose with her own life. Which is a good juxtaposition to Edward Norton's character, who is very uptight. And obsessed with little things. So they trade off, and it works out that they have half the groups each, and they alternate Sundays, like first and third Sunday of the month for for another group. I love the fact that they're, they're, they're having this very serious conversation about who gets brain parasites yeah like blood parasites and so I, I think that's pretty, I really I really I found that really funny you can't have both the parasites yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's really good because anyone listening in to that conversation and they're talking about it so nonchalantly when other people at those groups are actually dying and suffering narrator's then talking about single serving friends so he's talking about how you have single-serving coffee with single-serving milk and single-serving sugar and single-serving toothbrush. And then that when you're sat on a plane for the duration of that plane ride, you have a single-serving friend. And he's then describing to a woman about what his job is, which is actually a really good exposition to finding out about what he does for the audience in that he works for a car company and he is sent out to accidents to see what the cause is and basically he's talking her through the algorithm of if it's more expensive to recall the cars back or for what the company would be sued or have to pay out you know x equals y sort of situation but it's very heartless and the woman looks very concerned concerned because she's then like what car company do you work for and then it cuts to another oh he says like a major one yeah and then this is where we're introduced to Tyler, as he is one of the single-serving friends on the plane. What was your first thoughts of Tyler? We go past him at the airport, don't we, as well? They, they go past each other. Oh, do they? I the didn't airport. notice that. I think there's a, there's a scene where, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're... You know when you're on those like travelators at the airport? They're, they, they're on opposing ones. Ah. And Tyler goes past the other way. He's just like leaning. And then we see, meet him on the plane. So that's the first introduction of him, and then we meet him on the plane. And he goes, hey, we've got the same briefcase, doesn't he? Yeah, and I just... And start talking. Do you think that Tyler is wearing red because that is like the opposite of blue? And if we're saying the film's got a filter of blue over it, that would make him stand out the most? Or am I just reading too much into that? Maybe. I, I have no idea. It's, it's not... It's not a bad theory, is it? Well, because when he's like flashing up in um, the little cuts at the beginning of the film, he really st- the flashes stick out because he's in red over the blue. Sure. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> so we're introduced to Tyler. As you said, they have the same briefcase. And Edward Norton goes into his spiel that he sort of gives to everyone. But Tyler is very different. And he basically just sort of calls him on the garbage that he's saying and oh you're you're smart how's that working out for you like being smart basically has the opposite sort of belief system to edward norton edward norton's very engaged with him and amused with him i guess you could say they're talking about the oxygen mask coming down if there's a plane crash and that actually it's to get people high to accept their fate and so on and so forth yeah it shows him the um emergency card doesn't it and he says like, look at those smiley faces they're calm as Hindu cows and Edward Norton kind of goes along with it and says actually yeah this guy's talking sense which is a bit crazy but it's make, yeah completely makes sense and then, then they go into like finding out about what each other does but he, it's only one way isn't it so he asks Brad Pitt 
he asks Tyler what, what he does and he says I make soap and he shows him the soap and then he he gets up doesn't he disappears yeah he gives he him his like, business card here's a good point that I didn't notice until this just recent viewing is as he's getting up to leave he says now do I give you the, the crutch or like the ass or something <laughs> like that yeah and he gives him the butt and then as he walks down the aisle then there's the female flight attendant and he gives her the crutch <laughs> So that's the first meeting of Tyler properly. So we go from the first meeting of Tyler to, okay, it's time to go back home. We see Tyler coming out of the airport and he's jumping into a convertible and drives off. And this is where Edward Norton's character is talking to the baggage handler and saying that his luggage hasn't come off the plane or whatever. Lost his luggage and then he goes home and then he finds his apartment has been blown up. In the context that we know that Tyler and Edward Norton are the same character. Is that to say that he was just speaking to himself on the plane and that's why Tyler just got up and left because no one was sat there anyway. Yeah. And the fact he's got the same briefcase is because there was just one briefcase there. Yeah. Basically. And then are we was are we to say then that It would have already been filled with soap as well. That he was already making soap. Yeah. Because then you, you find out later on that he blew up his own apartment, don't you? Well, this is what I was about to say, yeah. was that when did he blow up his apartment? Did he do this before he went on the trip? Yeah. So it would fill up with gas and whatever. Yeah. So he's already started the ball rolling, hasn't he, on Tyler coming out? Well, he's essentially blacking out and missing periods of time that he's unaware of where yeah. he's being Tyler. Because he already owns the house as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he's already like renting it. It was rented in your name is what he says towards the end yeah. of the film. And he phones him up as he's going to come to the house and he just turns up. And like they, they go, so we'll get to that. But So he's already in that, cy- that cycle of doing weird stuff already. Mm. And already has this other, other side to him. Not, you know, not to his knowledge, but it's happening. So he gets back to his apartment and it's blown up. And then his yin-yang table is like on the floor. And his condiments, his fridge, and he's like, how embarrassing. Because his narration is going over the top of it the whole time and then he decides to call he calls marla first but then hangs up doesn't he and she's like i can hear you breathing then he hangs up yeah and then he calls tyler he doesn't answer he hangs up and then the phone rings and he answers it and then he's like oh, i never answer the phone and then he's eating Chris really, really loud. Yeah, which you hate. We discussed this on Saving Private Ryan. It was popcorn, wasn't it? It's anything. It's anything. It's but, but interestingly, we're going to move on from the Chris thing. Interesting. <laughs> no one would answer the phone, would they? There's no one there. Oh. So the phone's just going to ring, 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 ring. And then his imagination or his psychosis will kick in, make the phone ring, and he'll pick it up. Like, Hello, and he's just talking to no one on the other end, isn't he? Good call. <laughs> So then they go for beers at a bar. And so at this point, again, he's just drinking on his own in a bar, drinking three or four pitchers of beer, because that's what they say when they come out. And they're tired of questioning him on consumerism. And then they come out, and then it's like, three pitchers of beer, you still can't ask me. Ask me if you can stay at my place. And then he's like, is that a problem? Is it a problem if you ask? I really like that, because he still doesn't let him off from asking. You still, you, you have to ask. Then he does, and then he says, okay, hit me really hard. And then he smacks him in the ear. I read that he's meant to, he was meant to come and be like, really namby-pamby kind of hit on the shoulder. 
Okay. And David Fincher had said to Edward Norton before they went to film the shot, hit him in the ear. Always hit him in the ear. And he went, okay. And him being the actor that he is and just like, so he's worked with David Fincher a few times and obviously he picked him for the film and stuff like that. He, he went, okay, and just went and did it. So Brad Pitt's reaction is, is apparently a real, you hit me in the ear, but that's a real reaction. Because he had absolutely no idea what was coming. <laughs> and again, we're to assume that this was just Edward Norton's character just being himself up. Like how we see through the CCTV camera towards the end of the film. Yeah. He's just kicking the crap out of himself, isn't he, really? In the car park. <laughs> they walk back to Tyler's place, Edward Norton's place, yeah. which is this just horrible house. Horrendous. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a horrendous house. Yeah, they're having like beers outside and Tyler's just smashing his, bo- his beer bottle on the floor and down the street and there's no one around for like half a mile it's in the middle of an industrial area and then as we go up and Tyler's touring the place he's like that's you that's me that's the toilet we good yep okay and it's just this like what looks to be like a urine stained just horrible mattress on the floor which now when we look at it he's just in that horrible house on his own it's like a crack den isn't it yeah basically a massive crack den or as he's like walking up the stairs, like one of his one of his feet sort of fall through one of the steps. Yeah, it's well, honestly the place is just completely derelict. It's horrible. It is horrible. Like you know that scene in Friends where Monica wants to go clean that woman's apartment and she's like <laughs> cleaning the door. Yeah. Like just burn it down. There's no there's no <laughs> saving it. <laughs> there's no coming back from this. There really isn't. So it's at this point, isn't it, that we start to find out a bit more about Tyler, so Brad Pitt Tyler and Edward Norton starts talking about all the jobs that he's got and one of the jobs is like we talked about earlier is a projectionist at a cinema so I've got a few questions like so I suppose at the time there would have still been film projectors but I wouldn't have thought many so they found the one cinema that they could go to that has a projectionist also I have a really big question about this and I, I, I don't know if you picked up on it they talk about him putting essentially a picture of a man's genitalia in the middle of a kid's film but they talk about Tyler not really sleeping and he works at night so what what kids are up late at night watching a film Uh, that it didn't fit it didn't work I I couldn't work it out I didn't know whether that was just him being all over the place or if that's a mistake or if that's no I think they've just put that uh, they've just missed that haven't they and they just Mm. put it in because it's more shocking to have that in a kids film than if it was in just like a regular film okay so I'd imagine it's probably just a continuity error or maybe not continuity error what do you call it just a error yeah but we get the nice bit where well I, I think it's the nice bit where Edward Norton's talking to the camera and it changes scene on scene and Edward Norton walks in and he's still talking to the camera and he is the narrator you feel like you know you're learning something now you're learning about the character um, that he's talking about and you're finding out a lot more and you're seeing the ridiculous things he's, he's done and that Tyler although is involved in the action that's taking place so in the restaurant in particular in the posh like hotel posh restaurant he's serving people with his headphones on and stuff like that and then he goes and pees in the soup yeah which is just horrendous it's like pee- he says he's peeing in the soup and he's farting on the meringue <laughs> and you can imagine what he's doing to the 
like the mayo or something like that. Or yeah, something and crab brisk or something. Yeah, but just... the, the farting on the meringue really bothered, <laughs> really bothered me. That's <laughs> like meringue. Okay, farting on meringues. <laughs> <laughs> well it's just meringue is airy and light as it is right like when you put meringue in your mouth it just it's add, like adding to the density creating density maybe let's move on from the meringues it's too much it is too much so he's involved in it because he points at the cigarette burn as well when they're at the cinema so Tyler points at the cigarette burn and says this is a cigarette burn or known as a cigarette burn and so on and they move on and then he says don't watch me while I'm peeing so he's they're both involved in, in in the narration of his story, but he's still acting out those bits. Which I quite like. I, really, I, I quite like that. I quite like he is actually narrating. He's called the narrator. And for a lot of it, it's only what's going on in his head. So it's only the voiceover. And then this is kind of like the first bit where he starts actually talking to you and engaging you as an audience, which I like. But you don't like that, do you, normally? I have mixed feelings about it. I liked it in this scene because... Tyler is playing along with it. It had a sort of different nuance to it. But in the in Goodfellas, when he's breaking the fourth wall, it's just him talking to us, and no one else is aware of it. Like he he's frozen time, and no one else is moving. So no, I liked it in this context. We then move into a bit of like a montage of Tyler and the narrator fighting more, and then this is where other guys come to sort of watch, and they're like, "Hey, fellas." No, it's okay, it's okay. Like, And then they start getting involved. But looking at it again from this context of knowing the complete story, this again is Edward Norton just beating himself up in front of people. Yeah. But then they just start getting involved in beating each other up. Yeah, and they're using the car park of the bar. Lou's. Lou's bar. And then it sort of escalates from there then, doesn't it? It then grows and then becomes bigger and bigger and bigger but they they move in they basically talk to the guy that runs the bar so it's not Lou but it's a guy that runs the bar the manager he's like I've got a room downstairs and clears everyone out turn the jukebox off turn the lights off we're going in the basement and then it all it then starts to unfold doesn't it and then this is where the rules first come in and as they're walking into the bar as they're about to go down to the cellar this is where Edward Norton and Brad Pitt they're both walking like with a bit of swag is probably the wrong word, but that they have no fear, but they're both walking in the same sort of way. So when you can tie it in, obviously they're the same person. I wonder, I'm assuming that that was coordinated by Fincher to say, you know, make sure you sort of coordinate in, in your attitude. And then, as you said, this is the introduction of the rules, which is one of the most famous lines in cinema history. Is The first rule of Fight Club is... We do not talk about Fight Club. And the second rule of Fight Club is... We do not talk about Fight Club. What's the fifth rule? Oh, God. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I can't really remember what the other rule... There was rules about, like, no shoes. Uh, but if you... If this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. I think that was... Yeah, that was the last rule, maybe, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. You Only two guys to a fight. Yeah, and no one can stop the fight. You can't, No one can get involved. It's only a, a tap out or someone shouting stop. Or someone going limp. Or someone going limp. Which is a rule that they ignore quite a lot later on in the film where people are no longer moving and they're <laughs> definitely more than limp. And I think another rule was that only one fight at one time. Yeah. We covered most of them. Yeah. That's <laughs> enough. We must be missing one, but not bad. So we get the... So we've got the famous rules now. They're out there. They're out. And, they're, and it's spreading. 
I'm very excited by this. I'm glad that you're here to witness. What is it? This is what came in the post, but uh, it's to be framed to go in here. Okay. I think you'll appreciate it. There's an art connoisseur. <laughs> I won't say that at all. So what Simon has unveiled to me is like a screenshot. Oh, how big would you describe this picture? A5? Yeah, I think picture. Uh, no, A3. It's like a bit, yeah. It's, it's a smaller bit than A3, is it? thinner, yeah. So it's a screenshot of Nicolas Cage in, I can only assume, Con Air. Yeah. Looking into the distance with a little smile on his face. How nice that's going to look on the wall. Have, uh, I mean, you called it art. <laughs> that glare just gave me. Does that not make you feel safe? That makes me feel safe. Okay. Don't kiss it. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Just enjoying my art. Put it down. So, Marla phones. I don't know how she has the phone number for this house, but she does. Well, maybe the number that. Is on that card. Maybe the card he gave her is the there's a paper street soap card. Oh, you think maybe it's already a Tyler card because she, that's what she knows him as is Tyler Durden. Yeah. So nice, good call. Maybe that's that. That would make sense. So she calls and she's basically saying that she has overdosed and he leaves the phone. He basically says it's going to last for hours and just sort of walks off. And then... Yeah, he leaves the phone on top, doesn't he? On top of the, the actual unit. And then Tyler comes over and picks up the receiver and starts listening to her talking. Which is... What the hell's going on? Which now, when you think about it, is very me, myself and Irene, isn't it? Yeah. It's just that, honestly, <laughs> he's just on the same phone call, just switched from being the narrator to Tyler. Yeah. And then this ensues the coitus... Of well, Tyler and well, he goes Mark. to her house first, doesn't he? He turns up, but Brad Pitt turns up at the house. That's it. So it's yeah. not Edward Norton, and then she goes, "Wait, did I call you?" And then it makes that if you didn't know, that is what makes you think, "Oh, it's... this stranger turned up," and she's because she's so drugged up, she's just letting it happen, and she doesn't know who she's phoned, and maybe she's called the wrong number, or or she thinks she has. He gets her out of the building, doesn't he? Because the police are coming in. Yeah, sort of... oh, it's, it's not the police. It's it's like oh, paramedics EMTs or... isn't it yeah it's this emergency services like, you've got so much to live for when they're banging on the door and she's as she's walking out she's pretending to be a neighbour being like she's the wrong one that one or yeah. whatever yeah she's a nuisance kind of kind of thing isn't it and then yeah. they th- that's when they run away and they they disappear don't they and that's when it then turns into a lot of sexual activity that an awkward 12 year old Simon would have been in the cinema watching with his parents that's right I like bringing it up Thank you. <laughs> still, still sore. <laughs> Maybe don't use the word sore. <laughs> Ma is now introduced into the household, and Edward Norton doesn't understand how she ended up getting there because she comes downstairs and he's expecting Tyler, and she walks in, and he's like, what "The hell are you doing here?" and starts like treating her like a bag of crap, basically. And then to her, she's obviously confused because it's all the same person. And they've just had a, a night together, like a whole night together. And, you know, she says some awkward things. 
when Tyler says to the narrator, don't talk to her about me. Yeah. So it's like his own subconscious is telling him to keep it under wraps. We then move into Tyler's secret formula for soap, which is obviously infamous. Uh, that it was liposuction, fat from humans, and then as they're stealing the soap, part of the bag gets caught on the barbed wire and it goes all over. Edward Norton is the horrible human fat. And then we get to the chemical burn scene. When I think of this film, there's a couple scenes that will always stick out and it'll be the chemical burn when they later hold the convenience store worker, they take his license, that he's going to be a veterinarian. That always sticks out. And then the final scene when the, like, the buildings go down. Yeah. So this is like a, a very famous scene as well. And the point being, it's all about Edward Norton needs to let go because he's basically so uptight. <laughs> what? <laughs> He basically needs to let go. He needs, he needs to let go because he's stuck in a world of that world, still in that world of consumerism and not being a, like a free spirit and not really fully understanding what Tyler's about. And I suppose it's his brain telling him he needs to just let go of all those issues in the world because they mean nothing. You need to start taking control of your life, and this is one way of doing it. Is is let's put this chemical in there. It's gonna it's gonna burn you and it's gonna hurt you, but. Actually, if you can overcome that, you can overcome anything. It's kind of the point, I think. There. The noise of it, like, sizzling so horrible. And the acting is so good from both Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. He, he genuinely looks in, in pain, doesn't he? He's, freak, like, proper freaking out. He's like, get off me, get, you know, please, please, get off me. He's a great actor. And it's like, you don't know what this feels like. And he shows him his hand, which obviously is the same hand. Yeah. And then says, you know, you can put water on it, that's going to make it worse, or you can put vinegar on it to neutralise the burn. This scene, like, affected me when I watched it for the first time. Like, this is one that kind of played on my mind a little bit as being, you know, a bit horrible. Do you remember your initial reaction to that scene? I think probably the same, just, like, why is he doing that? Why would you do that to someone? But And then you kind of work out he's doing it to himself, so it's even worse, really, but it's... It's about self-control, isn't it, at the end of the day? Um, which he clearly has none because he thinks he's two different people. Well, he doesn't even know that he's two different people and it's mad, isn't it? And, yeah, you know, I wasn't ever a particularly big fan of it, but you almost have that sense of pain with him and you feel like, oh, my God, this needs to stop um, because he won't let the burning stop. And then when that vinegar's poured on or the, the liquid's poured on to neutralise it, it's like... Oh, okay, we can all relax now because he's kind of, although I bet it still bloody hurts, he's it's not burning anymore, he's okay. Well, just while we're on this point, I just wanted to take a moment to think about the casting of Brad Pitt. Do you think that as Edward Norton's character is a consumer, and they sort of touch on it later about, and they say it a few times about, oh, I don't need some guy's name on my underwear, like referencing to like Calvin Klein and... And they says later, oh, you have to look like what Calvin Klein or Tommy Hilfiger say you need to look like. And they're on the bus and they see like a poster of like an underwear ad and, you know, like a half naked guy. And they're like, is that what a real man looks like? The irony I was thinking is Brad Pitt looks like he would be, he could be a model like that because he is almost the trope of what a good looking guy is in that he has been the punchline of what good looking is 
for decades. You know, oh, he, that guy's no Brad Pitt. Mm. Oh, it's not like he's the Brad Pitt of this. Well, he's not the Brad Pitt of the golf team. Do you have teams? So casting him in this role, do you think maybe it's that Edward Norton's consumerism projection of what he would like to be is what he sees in underwear adverts, etc., 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 and that's why he chose that his rendition of himself would be a good-looking guy like Brad Pitt? That's a great way of thinking about it. Like, what a really good point. Because, yeah, probably. I like that. That's a really, that's a really good... Well, thank you, because when you started making the expression you have now, I thought you were looking at me like, you are an idiot. No, not at all. No, the, the, the fact that you put that all together is, is, yeah, that's a really good like theory. I like that. I actually, you should send that in. I don't know who to be, you should send it in. To David Fincher. <laughs> I was thinking about this while walking my dog this morning, just before she rolled in fox poo, so, you know, <laughs> it's her own fight club. <laughs> We then get the speech that you spoke about earlier about being the middle children of history. We get a lot of uh, new faces in Fight Club um, and this is where maybe we're reintroduced to Meatloaf's character and we get this other guy that he gets shot in the leg later when Meatloaf gets killed and he looks like to me like an adult version of what I imagine Spike from the Little Giants grew up to look like. Have you seen the Little Giants? No. You certainly will on this podcast at some point, (laughs) and then you'll get that reference. But we get introduced to Jared Leto's character, they start showing up, and his name is Angel Face. Yeah. Which makes sense, because he has, like, an angel-like face. And the very blonde hair, isn't he? Just sort of supposed to be, like, again, that probably image of perfect, isn't he? He gets brutalised later. Yeah. It's, it's because he takes such exception to him, doesn't he? Really, Edward Norton just decides he just takes it. Because he's taking Tyler's attention. And that's it. Which <laughs> is his own attention. Which is just... Yeah, if you... Like, the way we're analysing it and looking at it, it's just bonkers, isn't it, when you bring it up and talk about it. Well, I wonder if that ties into the, what I was just saying a, a moment ago, in that Edward Norton not only had that jealousy towards him but also because Jared Leto is like a good looking guy he's like a, another Brad Pitt type mm. that maybe Edward Norton was insecure and about his projected beauty that he wanted to destroy something beautiful as he says yeah. because that is not what he looks like yeah absolutely not to say Edward Norton's like a bad looking dude or anything <laughs> we move on to a great scene where everyone in Fight Club starts getting homework and they have to start a fight with a stranger but to not win yeah my favourite bit of all that is the guy with the hose. That's Adult Spike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in um, Mindhunter uh, on Netflix. Good. Is it good? It's really good, yeah. yeah. He's spraying the priest yeah. with the hose. Yeah, he like, sprays those people as they go past and no one really... They react, but they don't really do anything. And then it's the when the the most unlikely person goes past he that you think would start a fight or like get into a fight with him. That's who he sprays. That's he smashes the Bible out of his hand as that's water and he's like get off and it, that really creates a like massive problem uh, and then you can tell that the, the priest isn't a fighter at all and he's like his punches are really bad but he's, he's really going for it and he's just like no, that's it I've had enough you've you've you know you're affecting my Bible now disrespecting my, my, my religion God. yeah 
I like the bit with Meatloaf just chasing people in like it's like maybe a shopping centre or something <laughs> and there's a guy on the bike who's just chasing them I thought it was like a station or something like that yeah you know, he's just like running around just screwing at people <laughs> I love that it's good and that this is kind of the it's the precursor isn't it it's the start of Fight Club is the is is the push towards like we get into that like you said the third act and it's becoming Project Mayhem isn't it where they've got homework now they're getting assignments and Tyler is is aware that these people are capable of following instruction and he's now setting them up to to do that so there's there's the two of them that's, that appear at the door isn't there who the guy that appears at the door first is in Band of Brothers isn't he oh, plays, plays Webster in Band of Brothers that was one of my favourite episodes of Band of Brothers by the way was his episode oh Webster one yeah my yeah. episode like 7 or 8 or something yeah before we get there, or I guess what he's building, everything you just said, he's building like an army to have a war on consumerism because later Project Mayhem is all about trying to take credit card debt to zero for everyone to sort of start again so everyone's on equal paving. Yeah. Which doesn't particularly make that much sense. I guess maybe in 90, 1999 that might make sense, but now it's just online, you know, blowing up the building is not going to do anything, but... I know we talked about it before as in previous podcasts as well, but we're at that point of Millennium Bug again, aren't we? And it's what's going to happen and this, that and the other. So although we'll get to it in a minute, it's, it, they talk about resetting the debt to zero and going from there, and that's their big thing, isn't it? We then move into uh, another great scene of where, and someone we haven't spoken about yet, but Edward Norton has the fight with his boss. Well, a fight with himself, but yeah. blaming it on his boss, which results in him being able to to not have to work anymore, and he's blackmailing him, saying that I will not release this information I know about the company. I can do this job from home. That's my yeah. favourite line from that. <laughs> yeah, and he gets the computer and everything. This is where he just starts punching himself in the face, throws Three. himself through a glass table as well, which is uh, as. You know, a bit of a lunatic myself. I would love to throw myself through a glass table, <laughs> but it not like be massively painful or anything like that. like a a stunt glass table, not an actual glass table because that would hurt and cause me some problems. But sure, I would. think it would be quite fun to either throw yourself through one or be thrown through a glass table. No, no, no. <laughs> maybe just you on that one. Okay, all right. <laughs> I actually thought what looked more painful was when he throws himself into like the glass shelves. Oh, the shelving at the back. Yeah, yeah and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. And he's just like runs and jumps. But he's actually quite used to beating himself up. He just doesn't know it. Yeah. So he's really good at it, isn't he? And he gets, smacks himself about quite a lot. Well, it's an interesting point of view, I guess, because we're seeing it. From his point of view, I guess, but also from his manager's point of view. And then, like you said, this is what everyone else sees all of the time when he's fighting. <sighs> Somewhere in here we've missed out where he's reading a book and it's all written from the perspective of body organs. I am Jax, colon, I am yeah. Jax, whatever. And so I think he mentions that in this scene where it's like, I am Jax. Uh, one of them is, I am Jax, total lack of surprise, which I love. I think that's a great bit when he, when he throws that in. I think that might be in the bit with the boss as well. Maybe, yeah. Like and then Tyler does one later. You know when he falls off the bike? He's riding the bike around <laughs> I the I love that bit. He just hits something and he's flying off the bike. That's, there's little like nuggets in, in the film that are quite funny. And those are the bits that are like really enjoyable about it as well. Is that It just feels quite normal. 
in the in a world that is completely not normal. Yeah, completely. Well, we will have varying degrees of what is and isn't normal. Just saying. Normal isn't normal. Mm. Zero isn't the size. It's at the start of Project Mayhem, isn't it? So we've got these guys that are standing at the front. They're calling him sir. They both go out, you know, and get in their faces, saying, "Just go home. Just go home." Like. Too, you're too young you're too, you're too young, old yeah. you're too whatever you're too fat and Meatloaf is the first one to actually go pick up his stuff and start to walk away and like no 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 come back come back come back and then they start getting you know the first person that gets in to Project Mayhem he's the one that's then going out and getting in their face going he goes you're too blonde <laughs> to Jared Leto's character and um, it develops from there and this is this is where homework si- assignments start to become a little bit more out of control because Tyler and the narrator go to that shop like you were saying earlier and this is where they basically take the guy who's working the shop out to the back kne- kneeling down and put a gun to his head and then find out all this information and then it, uh, I mean they let him go at the end which is nice but uh, and Tyler's reasoning for it is he's going to go he's going to you know, he might become the best vet in the world now and he'll feel, appreciate life a lot more. Raymond's breakfast will taste better than any meal we've ever tasted. Exactly. He's gonna. He's now going to live life to the fullest because he's had the closest, closest experience with dying that he has probably ever had. Which, again, it's, it's a moment in the film where you think it's extreme, but it's actually a really good point. He's actually probably made that person's life a little bit better by giving them the fear of death. And it's almost that point of... It's the same as the hand-burning scene for me. It's really hard to watch, but is that moment of if he just lets go, it'll be okay. Because this is the point where Edward Norton's panicking, he's panicking, he's freaking out. But the whole time, it would have been him with a gun to Raymond's head, wouldn't it? You know, so Edward, the narrator's become the subconscious and Tyler's taken over. And that's where he's like, no, no, don't do this, don't do this. And he's just like, right, Raymond, and he's just talking to Raymond. I never thought about it from that perspective, actually, that, yeah, he's just there on his own. I actually remember understanding that scene quite well on my first viewing when I was a kid and get and sort of getting that. And then later in the film, you see the back of a door, of Tyler's door, and it's just filled with all of these licenses from where he's done this to loads of other people, which is a good callback. Mm. So we get back to another Fight Club meeting, and this is where Edward Norton, the narrator, beats to a, a pulp Jared Leto's character, Angel Face. Yeah. And it is really hard to watch, especially at the end when it sort of it doesn't sort of close up on his face, but you can see he's missing several teeth. It's, it's that build-up, though, isn't it? The build-up of, like, oh, this person's, like, they're encroaching on my territory and they're, they're kind of taking my friend. And they're, uh, and they're taking the one person who looks out for me and that is like almost like the biggest part of his life, isn't it? Um, what he doesn't realise is it's him. But he then thinks, right, I'm going to put a stop to it and just goes for him, doesn't he? And just absolutely beats, beats the hell out of him. Which, And then, like you said, I'll, he says after that, I wanted to destroy something beautiful. He sure did. Oh, he absolutely did. I mean, there's that horrible bit in his nose, isn't there? And Do you know they actually cut a scene out? In the, de- in the deleted scenes in the um, the director's cut that was a lot more graphic That's, really? yeah you actually see his nose explode and oh stuff. my god it's grim it's really grim but they cut it out because the studio said you can't have it there's two things they took away from the film and that was one of them what was the other? one of Marla's lines what what did she say? you know she says I haven't been F like that since oh, grade like, school yeah yeah that line 
was originally something else, uh, which is like an extreme line. Um, when the studio saw it, they said, you have to take that line out. So I think Fincher said, if I take that line out, I'm only replacing it once and that will stay. You will not change that line again. So they went, okay. He changed it for that and they begged him to put it back. And he said, no, you told me to change it. I've changed it. That's it now. And they actually begged him and they said, please put it back to what it was. And then he wouldn't do it. What, do you know what the original line was? I could find it. I want to have your abortion. That, that, that's it. Yeah, that was the line. I want to have your abortion. And then it became, I haven't been F like that since grade school. Put it back. Put it back to how it was. And he said, no, absolutely not. You've made me change it. I'm keeping it that way. I'll tell you what. LeVar Burton would have neither in Smart House. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> no, I want to know. Am I right? You are right. You are correct. What I love is that since I last came round, this Smart House has worked its way into this room. The DVD. The DVD. Why do you think that is, Dom? Because you're going to make me watch it. Again. (laughs) Should we do, like, in a year's time, Smart House Revisited? Sure. Excellent. See what we've learned from it. Booked it, yes. Because it is is a learning experience. Okay. This is where we get what's noted as a near-life experience where Tyler and the narrator are arguing in the car with... A couple of the Project Mayhem guys in the back and this now again in this context is even crazier because this is just Edward Norton arguing with himself yeah, and then resulting in letting the car just drift until it crashes into another car and flips over. Very early on we've established that one of the rules to Project Mayhem is that you don't ask questions. So they don't ask questions, they just sit quietly because they're not allowed. And it's been made very clear to them that they're not allowed, so they just follow blindly. A crazy man. Yeah, who is essentially having a row with himself. Yeah. And puts everyone in the car at risk. And the car does crash then, doesn't it? Or it just misses a lorry and falls off like into a verge. Does it, does it flip? I think it flips over, and then yeah. you see Brad Pitt pulling Edward Norton out of the car, don't you? Which can't really happen, but does. So as part of their... Homework assignments. One of them, one of their homework assignments, like Project Mayhem, is now developing and becoming bigger and bigger. And one of their homework assignments is to destroy a coffee chain, and uh, and a piece of corporate art. Corporate art, yeah. So they plant like little explosives at the bottom of this massive like dome that's on the top of a fountain kind of thing, and it, it's quite a nice bit of art. And it blows up the base of the ball and it rolls and then rolls into this coffee chain and smashes this coffee shop up. Interestingly, there is a Starbucks cup in almost every scene in the film bar the last scene. Oh, so really? I think in every scene in the film there's a Starbucks cup in every scene. Now Starbucks were all happy with that and were like, yeah, that's not a problem but it can't be a Starbucks you destroy. So they had to make up a coffee chain name. I can't remember what it's called now but they, they make up this coffee brand and then destroy the coffee shop. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't notice that. I did notice, yeah, bits of Starbucks of cups and whatever. And there was a lot of Pepsi in the film. I noticed. Yeah, Pepsi's everywhere. Like massive product placements. So there's vending machines all over the place and cans and all sorts. But yeah, it's big money, isn't it? Product placement, isn't it? Pepsi will turn around and go, "Here, we'll give you that if you just drop our vending machine in, in the background, like every ten minutes or." <laughs> well, and again, Lavar Burton. 
no, no Pepsi. No, no Pepsi, no Starbucks, no nothing. Do you know why? Because the screenplay speaks for itself. Doesn't need anything else. Nothing to do with Disney. Why do you like give me those eyes of like pure hatred when I say anything <laughs> critical about Smart House? We've destroyed the bit of corporate art. We've destroyed the coffee chain. Homework assignments, two for one. Job done, right? Well, this is where they get caught out because the police start chasing them and the police officer gets a bit trigger happy and starts shooting at them. And this is where, and I'm almost, your head is already dipped in, in sadness. I'm almost, you know, sad to say it, but Meatloaf gets shot in the head and dies. Not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> Want my money back. After love. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. I'd do anything for love. I won't do that. It's the only other one I can think of. Midnight of the Lost and Found. Bat out of hell. They're running like a bat out of hell when he gets shot in the head. <laughs> and then this is being told back by adult Spike. And <laughs> He's just making up names with people, I love it. He's been shot in the leg, and then this is where the narrator is very upset by this because Meatloaf was his friend. And it it saying, was his first friend as well. It's the first person that he engages with in the, in the film that isn't a lunatic. <laughs> and then he is adamant that they're saying, they're saying bury him in the garden is evidence. And he's saying, it's not evidence. His name is Robert Paulson. And then this ensues the chant of, oh, in death in Project Mayhem, you have a name. And this sort of goes to show their <laughs> craziness. They're just like following this sort of military-type cult. It is a cult, isn't it? It's just pure cult. His name is Robert Paulson. His name is Robert Paulson. And it just goes on and on and on. And then as like, Edward Norton's character starts to work out who, who he is and what's going on, when he's doing all this travelling, they say it in the, in the other towns it goes to, as if his name is Robert Paulson. So it spreads. It just... It's like... Matt. They're what... doing it like a seance almost. Like his mm. name is Robert Pop. Like it's sort <laughs> yeah. of like meditation or something. Yeah, very scary. Well, that, as you just correctly said, moves into uh, Tide is sort of gone and he finds all of these airport ticket stubs and he gets everyone out of the house and starts going to all these different places to try and find where Tyler has been. And then eventually he runs into a bar manager or someone at the bar that's got like this sort of headgear on like he's been beaten up or you know been in fight club and he basically lets it slip that you know you are tyler durden and then he calls marla who am i and he can't get a straight answer and she says tyler durden tyler durden and then he realizes and then bam there is brad pitt with his shaved head which now makes sense as you said from project mayhem and whatever and they sort of have this conversation but he still blacks out one more time and then he's there's the phone calls uh, on the hotel records between like 2.30 and 3am where Tyler's like taken over again. Yeah. I would almost love to see the ver- a version of this film where it is just Edward Norton all on his own. Yeah. <laughs> but doing all the bits. Doing all of it, yeah. 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 And it just changes for the Brad Pitt bit. Yeah, that would be good. We then get to... Edward Norton trying to get Marla away, putting her on a bus. I don't want to see the bus because I'll know where you are if I know. Tyler will know. 
and we get towards the end of the film to you know where the starting point is again he cuts the wires and cut the blue one anyone anyone but the blue one you're going to tell me it's not blue aren't you what color was it this is the thing with you you've got this perfect memory i think it's green (laughs) i'm pretty sure it's green heavens no not the green one (laughs) i love that bit and then they they have a fight he goes to shoot tyler and it's but it's he hits the van it's got all the explosive in wow (laughs) <laughs> he just like freaks out <laughs> because he doesn't want to die and obviously if Edward Norton dies he dies this is the bit I really like as well because then you see a CCTV clip of him dragging himself along I think that's impossible it's mad so it's like the first sort of thought of all oh, maybe just like an invisible man but it's, it's I think it's a really good bit you see Edward Norton like holding himself by the collar being dragged along along the floor and there's no one doing it. It's just him doing it to himself. And it's, I, I, quite, I like that bit as well. well. It kind of links to two Jim Carrey films. One being me, myself and Irene where he's doing that to himself at the end. And then the other one being Liar Liar when he's like, what are you doing, son? I'm kicking my ass, <laughs> And we get to the climax of the film and he decides to shoot himself in the like in the mouth but coming out the side of his throat well he works out that he's got the gun all along doesn't he so he says if you've got the gun then I've got the gun and the gun's in his hand and then that's where Tyler is in fear almost it is completely changed now because this guy has let go I think this is the point where he let, lets go he's I understand now I'm in control and I have the power to stop you because the bus pulls up, doesn't it? And you see Marla getting dragged upstairs, and he's like, "No, don't, don't do anything, don't do anything." And it's all right, okay. Actually, if you've got the gun, I've got the gun. Here it is. I've got the power now. Because actually, I'm going to do this. Puts the gun in his mouth. Like I said, shoots himself through the side of the thing. I'm not sure whether that's intentional, whether he meant to kill himself to make it all stop, or you know whatever. But it seems to work, doesn't it? He shoots himself, and then you see the smoke coming out of Brad Pitt's mouth and of the gunfire and all this he's covered in blood and he's splitting all over the place isn't he he blows a perfect ring with the gun smoke I can't remember what he says it's just like whoa yeah. or something like that yes. I've always been confused as to how he survived that I'm assuming that's not possible I don't know that, that probably is possible if he's, yeah, if he's shot himself out here and he's not hit anything vital but He's going to hey, need some, he's going to need a couple of aspirin. He's definitely going to need a few of those. Although that thins your blood, it make more splat out. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then his painkillers will be required. Yes, he then sends away the uh, Project Mayhem guys. He's left with Marla, and then he says something like to close the film. You met me at a very strange period of my life, and then music kicks in. And the buildings, apart from the one that they're in, because he obviously pulled the green wire, they all come down and explode. And then the credits start, if you zoom away, the credit comes in, then we get a hairy penis shot, and then credits. And that is Fight Club. Yay! We did it. We made it. So, that is the film. Let's talk about our judgments of said film. So, Dom... For you, of the main cast, who was your best performer of the movie? I'm going to say Brad Pitt. I think he's got a lot of 
I mean, a lot of his lines that he has are, are you know quite difficult and challenging but he brings them across in the right way and he is the kind of metaphorical arm around your shoulder isn't he that actually in this world of all this shit going on and corporate nonsense and consumerism it's all going to be okay because even when it all ends it's fine because you just let go and you can live in a crappy old house with that floods and you have to turn the electricity off when it rains and stuff like that and it's all going to be all right but he i think he just comes across so well and he's very funny and uh, also does serious very well i just i just think as a as an actor and the character he just does it really well I just, I just like him throughout it and what about you i also think brad pitt is great i will say edward norton though um because he <laughs> he had he went through a large array of emotions he really demonstrated his talent and he was really believable in the role so i'll say edward norton what about your favorite performer in the secondary cast are we counting primary cast or main cast as Edward Norton, Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, and I think everyone else... Because I think she deserves three. a mention as well. I think the top the top three are great. She's really good. She's brilliant, really, really yeah. Good. So, like, you know, well done. <laughs> Take that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was 20 years ago, but whatever. <laughs> Secondary cast. I know who you're going to say. Adult Spike. Oh, you're going to say Meatloaf. You're absolutely going to say Meatloaf, aren't you? And I probably agree. If you are going to say Meatloaf. So I'm going to say Meatloaf, I think. Although all the other people that talk at the groups and stuff like that. So we didn't talk about Chloe. Ah, oh, Chloe. We didn't talk about Chloe who... Basically she's dying and she wants to have sex for one last time before she dies. And we never know if she does or doesn't, but we do know she dies. That's so sad. Which is sad. So there's characters like that that flit in and out. And the guy with uh, that's at the testicular cancer you know, group that talks first. And he, you know, he's actually performs that really well says that his you know his wife's just had the first kid and it's not his kid and he's you know, she's moved on and, and he gets really like upset I think it has to go go to like Meatloaf for secondary cast because he's not in, in the film as much as the rest obviously so he he you know I think he wins it for me agreed do you know he actually sat next to David Fincher throughout the entire filming of the of the film Really? As well, yeah. He he um really wanted to be involved as much as possible with the, the, the just with the, the whole film and really liked the idea of being with the director. So he actually got a chair and sat behind him, behind the director, like behind him like to one side, just to stay out of the way. And David Fincher said, No, no, come sit next to me and moving forward. And then they'd film let's say they'd film a scene and there was about forty versions, forty takes of, of that scene. He'd say to Meatloaf, what was your, what was the best one? And Meatloaf, uh, on one of them, I can't remember what particular scene it was, was like, oh, it's like 25 or 26, or whatever was the best one. And uh, Dave Finch was like, yeah, 26 was the best one, that's the one we use. And so Meatloaf actually had a hand in, like, supporting with the directing in this film. There you go, there's a little nugget for you as well. As if I didn't need any more reasons to love him. <laughs> love that. But what about your favourite scene? Uh, the scene I really like is is Edward Norton as the narrator explaining who Tyler is and all the, the talking to the camera and the pointing out the cigarette burn and the peeing in the soup, which is horrendous, but I like that bit and just that bit kind of flows. That's good, yeah. I like I like that bit as well. I'd say my favourite scene would be when they first meet on the plane. Oh yeah, that's a good scene. Is it's just good introduction, it's good dialogue. What about the music throughout the movie? What did you think? Other than 
so the title track and maybe the track at the end it, there's a few bits here and there but nothing that I really paid particular attention to I was more focused on what was going on in the film rather than listening to the music which is quite weird for me because normally that's the main thing I focus on like, or one of them is the music I like, always take note of what's what's being played but I didn't, didn't really pay much attention to it in this film yeah same actually apart from the titles the out- intro and outro I couldn't tell you yeah well let's get on to our ratings so I guess we normally do a subjective rating and an objective rating, but I maybe for reasons that you said at the top of the podcast, we can just both give an objective rating because neither of us particularly have massive attachment to the film. Mm. So objectively, out of 10, what would you rate Fight Club? Seven. There's a lot of like good themes in the film. It's quite well put together. There's bits in it that I'm not quite sure about that don't quite make sense to me, so... Yeah, I think seven. I agree with you also. I was <laughs> thinking seven. Six is too low. Too low. Eight, like, I I could see an eight. It'd probably be like a high seven, but seven feels right. Yeah. And there are standout moments, standout scenes. So, final question is, well, two questions is, would you recommend this film to somebody else and would you watch it again? Yes and yes. I would recommend it to someone that hadn't seen it. And I would probably like to watch it with them to see their reaction to to the big reveal if they hadn't seen it before. Nice. What about yourself? I would recommend it. I would watch it again, but I'd probably give it at least probably another 10 years or something, and then I would revisit it. (laughs) Yeah. That is Fight Club. Uh, As I did the deep dive into Fight Club which you chose, it is now my turn to choose for you what you will deep dive for our next episode. But Dom, there is more. More? More. So, not only have I chosen a film for you to deep dive into, Mm. I also have contacted one of the actors from the film. Shut up. And they are going to join us on the podcast via Skype as they live in California as most actors do okay and they will dive into the film with us and we'll get their perspective from them actually being in the film no way yes way and they're also like a major character in the film it's not like they're an extra or something this was you know a credit an actual person is it Bruce Willis (laughs) (laughs) That'll be on the next, next, next episode. <laughs> so the film I would like you to deep dive into is the classic The Mighty Ducks. Oh. The first one. Emilio Estevez. Emilio Estevez. And and the actor joining us is Matt Doherty. <laughs> it's brilliant. Who played Lester Averman in The Mighty Ducks. The Kid with Glasses. The Kid with Glasses. I remember him. Yeah, he was also... We're going to be talking to him next week. Yeah, on the podcast. He's going to do the whole podcast with us. For real? For realsies. He was in Home Alone. He was in Mighty Mighty Ducks Ducks. 1, 2 and 3. Mighty Ducks 1, 2 and (laughs) 3. He was also in the Mike Myers film, So I Married an Axe Murderer. And yeah, so we'll be talking to him, finding out his perspective... And getting into all that good stuff. He's an early 90s 
hero? My inner child is quacking so hard right now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I can't wait. I look forward to uh, doing the deep dive on the film and hopefully not embarrassing myself in front of someone who was in it. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. We'll have a good time. Thank you everyone for listening. We actually have a couple updates on how you can interact with us. We now have our website, which is themighty90s.com. Doesn't matter whether you are using letters or numbers, either way it's going to go to the same place, which is our website. So please hit us up on there. You can message us with suggestions for other TV shows or movies that we can look into or just hit us with any questions or comments or anything like that we'd love to hear from you we'd love to know if anyone is actually listening to this so please do we also have an instagram account which is again the mighty 90s that's 90s on instagram so you can hit us up on there as well please rate review and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get podcasts or however you're listening to this right now dom Thank you very much. Yeah, follow us on, on, on all of those. Check out our website and yeah, let us know what you think. Be gentle with us. Please. Thank you for the support and we will see you next time for the Mighty Ducks with Matt Doherty. Quack.